0: The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters.
1: The remarkable thing about the enemies of the people is that it was such a rare, indeed, virtually unique occurrence. And while it was quite wrong, I have to say that actually it highlights the fact that the judiciary are treated with respect generally.
0: Hello, welcome back. My name is Kevin Poulter, and today I'm talking to David Newberger, also known as Baron Newberger of Abbotsbury. Unfortunately, due to the coronavirus outbreak, we weren't able to meet with David in person in chambers, so we're speaking down the line. And I hope you enjoy this opportunity to sit down with one of our most senior and well-respected judges um, to understand his own position, his humility, and his down-to-earth approach to life and to his career. The hearing. First of all, thank you for joining us, uh, Lord Newberger. I know you like to be called David, so I will take it from there if that's okay. Of course. And we were meant to be joining you in your chambers at 1 Essex Court, which I imagine is beautiful and wood panelled, uh, but instead, uh, due to coronavirus, uh, we are self-isolating, and uh, can I ask where you are today?
1: Yes, I'm I'm in, in, in Dorset. Uh, I've got a house in Dorset, and I'm got the advantage of looking out on rather a beautiful sunny field outside uh but not as you say in uh, the middle of the temple where we normally would be in essex court
0: yeah and how are you adjusting to uh to life in isolation
1: it's quite eerie i think it must be rather lonely for people who haven't got a partner or someone like mm. that um on the other hand what it would have been like 40 years ago without access to one's children on facetime without <laughs> access to work on the internet etc i don't know that would give self-isolation its real <laughs> meaning uh, as it is it's it's not too bad i have to say yeah if it goes on for a long time i'll probably go stir crazy but at the moment it's not not as bad as it could be
0: yeah i think a lot of people are in exactly the same situation um so we're all hoping for for some light relief uh, and hopefully we can provide some today so uh, let's see how we how we move on and um, I'm going to talk to you initially, or talk through your uh, earlier days. Um, You were at Westminster School, I believe, but then law wasn't the immediate or first choice um, following your move into university. Uh, What happened there? Um,
1: I liked history. I didn't like any other subjects much, but I was told I couldn't do history because it wasn't a word my parents or the school used. I don't even know if it was around when I was... In my teens, but I was I thought to be a bit of a bullshitter, and history they thought was a subject I'd get away <laughs> with too easily. And I was really given the choice of classics or, or, or science. And I think because my father was a scientist, I chose science. And I did science A levels. Uh, in those days, you couldn't mix and match, so all my A levels were science. And mm. I went to university and, and read chemistry. Um, And after three years, realized I wasn't really a scientist. Uh, For years, I thought I'd wasted my time doing science. But looking back on it, I think it was very useful for two reasons. One, it gave me a perspective on an important area of life, which otherwise I wouldn't have known much about. Mm. And secondly, there is a rigor about science. You know, your answers are either right or wrong, particularly at sort of undergraduate level. And it did probably tighten me up intellectually, which reading many other subjects probably wouldn't have done. Mm. And later on, it was very useful because they made me a patents judge, although I'd had nothing to do with patents as a lawyer, because I I was that rare thing, a a judge who been a scientist at university.
0: Mm. and uh, Well, that's, uh, I think, uh, nowadays a reasonably, um, maybe not common, but certainly an opportunity for scientists to move across into uh, patents work. Um, So you were probably You're quite right. uh, 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 leading the charge on that. Um, uh, But then, following university, um, uh, a shift again. Uh, Science wasn't really a a, a practical uh, or a vocational choice for you as a career. Um, Am I right in saying you went to a merchant bank? For a while
1: yeah I, w- I did what's now called i think an investment bank then a Im- merchant bank as you say um yeah i i i i was told by the um careers people at my university that um they thought i was suitable either for law or, or, or the city or for finance and i had had enough of exams and in those days you didn't need to do any exams to be in in, in, in the financial world so i went into the financial world and. Well, to, to put it bluntly, uh, if I wasn't a very good chemist, I was a worse banker <laughs> um, and discovered that after
0: two years. Mm. Um, and and, and was, it, was it your choice to move uh, on or was that somebody else's decision?
1: I decide, I'd spent my last year doing my bar exams uh, at the bank, and I think I left about a week before I would have got the sack. <laughs> it was a close run thing. <laughs>
0: Um, so so that begs the question, and, and you mentioned uh, earlier on that maybe work in the city or, or work in science or maybe even work in law was an option, but, but why, why then decide on a legal career?
1: I remember the moment very clearly. I was walking back home from my banking job feeling pretty low. Um, I'd tried two careers and I hadn't worked and didn't know what to do looking back on it, I seemed very young. I was 24. Mm. But at the time, it seemed middle-aged almost, and I was nowhere. And my friends were all making out on their careers. And I met a friend who had just started as a barrister in practice. And we went off for a drink, and I moaned about my work, and he told me about his work. And as he described it, I just thought, that's what I want to do. Mm. It was just a moment which made me realize that practice as a lawyer was something I wanted to do. I think I hadn't been had really considered it seriously because my mother didn't like lawyers, and <laughs> she was quite an influence on me. Um, and she was never very happy with me as a, as a lawyer, was delighted when I became a judge because she thought that was a worthwhile
0: job. Oh uh, really? What was, Do you know what the reason was <laughs> for that?
1: Well, she summarized it very well. She said lawyers are what she called smart Alex, who argue the case for whichever client pays them, which of course is absolutely true. <laughs> But that's how the system works. But she didn't approve of it.
0: Oh, how interesting! Um, uh, what was out of interest? What was
1: her background? Um, her father had been a stockbroker in, in the city. Uh, she'd been. Her parents were both born abroad. He was Swiss, and she was French. But my mother was born here. She was quite a good sculptress and painter, um, and was very much in, in, in that world. She gave it up for the family when she married, as usual in those days. And then she took it up again later on when we were starting to grow up.
0: And is that something that's um, followed through to you as well, if you're a budding artist? I wish it had. I enjoy painting some sculpture.
1: Um, and my wife keeps on telling me I should take up painting as a hobby. But so far,
0: I haven't. Well, now might be the time. Um, <laughs> there might be little else to do. <laughs> uh, take the opportunity. I, I don't or, know.
1: Yes, I don't know if I don't know if I'm allowed to go out and buy paints. I'm not sure if that's on the permitted list. But maybe if I say I'm buying food and buy paints at the same time, that'll be allowed.
0: <laughs> Good luck. Good luck with that down in uh, Tesco. <laughs> um, uh, and so, so that takes you uh, right through. So you you did your bar exams and started your pupillage. And um, what was yep. wasn't that experience like? Was it similar to being in the banking world? It was very different
1: um, from being in the banking world. Um, it was a bit more individualistic but in an odd way it was an odd mixture of more hierarchical and less hierarchical. I mean you were told as a, as a, as a barrister you were not allowed to call any other barrister Mr or Mrs or Sir or whatever. You had to call them by their surnames like at, 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 at a public school. So you, 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 you treated very senior member of chambers, a highly respected QC, in one sense as an equal, but in another sense, the pecking order was very clear. And in a way, I think that the bar, it's got less true now, was a sort of haven for people who were at home, in, at school and university. Mm. It was, you know, the, the inns of court are like a, an old public school or a, an old style university in, in atmosphere with courtyards or quadrangles and staircases, uh, 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 and the the attitude of barristers in particular is, is quite similar to debaters at university.
0: Mm.
1: It, it's got a bit better, and it, it, I just missed the, the the era where you were expected to have a bowler hat if you were in practice.
0: And and did that suit you? And I
1: know one or two one or two people who were told <sighs> that we are not going to take you on as a member of chambers unless you get a bowler hat. Really. I just Yes, but that 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 was that was that was just about. Thank goodness for me, that was the sixties, and that had gone by mm. the seventies when I, I started. But a number of people in chambers wore bowler hats, and it was a big generational difference because I thought bowler hats were completely ridiculous, mm. and so did most of my generation. But people from five or six years earlier uh, had bought them because that was expected of them.
0: And so there's, there's obviously a change um, being, uh, taking place, almost a, not, let's not say revolution, but there certainly a, a mindset difference um, at that time. Um, has, uh, you've been around the Inns uh, of Court now for a, a few years, um, how do you think it's changed since then? Uh, has that been a constant progression or have we had some steps back uh, or giant leaps forward?
1: In terms of general atmosphere, One has to be a bit careful because I think every generation as they grow up feels this. But I think there's definitely been a reduction in the respect agenda. I think there was more um, respect, more deference to senior people, to judges, than there is now. Um, As I say, I've got to be a bit careful because I suspect everybody feels that as they move up the ladder. Mm. Things aren't what they were. I I gave people more respect than they give me. But I think actually it's a good thing. I think that, 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 that then there was too much deference. Too many judges, for example, felt they were entitled to enormous respect and deference, not because of the fact that they were good judges and did their jobs well, but because they were judges and were entitled to behave entirely as they liked, because purely by virtue of their position, they were entitled to respect. That's not actually very good. You're entitled to respect if you're good at your job and do it properly. In terms of um, structure, I think the big change for people starting at the bar is, is twofold, which are connected. The first is that pupils, when I was a pupil, were not paid a penny, whereas now they're paid, in many cases, pretty well. Secondly, as a consequence, it was quite easy to get a pupillage but difficult to get taken on as a member of Chambers. Whereas now the bottleneck is much more getting pupillage. If you get pupillage, you've got normally a good prospect of becoming a member of Chambers. And I still remember Essex Court Chambers, where I was a pupil and didn't get taken on. There were about 20 members of Chambers then. There are now, I guess, 80 or 100. They had about 10 pupils then with 20 members of Chambers, perhaps eight, certainly eight. Now with four times as many members of chambers, they have two or three pupils. Mm. So pupillage is a great barrier, whereas whereas then getting taken on was the barrier.
0: And presumably at the time as well, there were relatively few women around. You're absolutely right.
1: Um, Women and ethnic minorities were a real rarity. Women, it was getting a bit better. I mean, even when I became a judge in 1996, I remember, I think I remarked on it in court, probably a completely uh, inappropriate thing to do, having a case where there was a woman barrister on each side. Mm. It was so unusual to have two women barristers. Having one was moderately common, but it was sufficiently uncommon for two to be a rarity worth commenting on. Mm.
0: Um, and as you say, that was 1996 when you uh, became a high court judge in the Chancery Division. Um, did you, setting out uh, in your legal career, did you have a, a a plan? Did you have an aspiration to be a judge? Uh, was your mum pushing you from behind uh, <laughs> into that role? Um, or, or, or or is it something which happened almost by accident?
1: I, I'm afraid my, my whole career has been very much, I think the word, expression is ad hoc. I am... Um, I find it quite difficult to find chambers. I did three pupillages at the end of in different chambers, at the end of which each of which somebody else was taken on rather than me. And I almost wow. left the bar in in, in, in um, disappointment, feeling yet another failure. And I yeah. tried for what was at the time a significantly less good set of chambers as a last throw and got taken on. It's a typical example of beware what you wish for because the three chambers mm. which i tried before that i'd rather have joined which were more mm. if you like grander wouldn't have suited me nearly as well as the chambers i ended up in mm. but um when i joined those chambers i was just relieved to be have got a set of chambers and i didn't actually think i'd probably take become a qc let alone a judge so i i, I throughout my career i've just sort of things have come along on the whole Uh, opportunities have come along or approaches have come along and i've accepted them i can't pretend there's been any any plan
0: and how did that approach come along um uh, in probably 95 96
1: well in those days you didn't apply to become a high court judge Mm. you were approached by the lord chancellor and actually i been approached three years earlier in 93 and felt I was just too young I was it's one of those moments that rather like when I decided I want to be a barrister one of those moments in my career I remember I was asked to go and see the Lord Chancellor <clears throat> and the chambers I was in as I say were not very grand they've now become much more um uh, well known and and, and successful but nobody in my chambers had become a judge, a High Court judge before. When I was asked to see the Lord Chancellor, I didn't realise that the code they used in, to invite me to see him was saying, be, prepare yourself for being offered a High Court judgeship. So when he asked me whether I wanted to be a High Court judge, I was completely gobsmacked. In yeah. fact, I rather inappropriately said I was gobsmacked um, <laughs> to him because I was taken aback. And I, I just decided that I, I wasn't quite ready um that's again a change 30 mm. for 30 40 years ago if you were offered high court judgeship and you said you weren't ready the lord chancellor would say to you either accept it or it'll never get offered again mm. that was a convention a silly convention but that was the convention whereas this time lord Mackay, who was lord chancellor is still around and a great man in my view not merely because he appointed me um <laughs> said um said said well you know you are quite young um when would you be ready? And I, I said in three years time, and very flatteringly, three years later, he asked to see me and asked me to, to become a high court judge. Gosh. Again, and I, I accepted it. I made a list of reasons for doing it and not doing it. Mm. And the reasons for not doing it were considerably longer, but I nonetheless took it.
0: <laughs> um, and, uh, well, presumably no regrets.
1: Oh yes, there've always been some regrets. Oh. i think um now i'm glad I did it and I, i'm not saying I regret it but there were times when i regretted it um some the thing is if you're a successful barrister in in, in the in the in the civil field um it's a horrible way horrible point to make as one's first point but mm. you make unless you're very extravagant you make more money than really you know what to do with yeah and psychologically moving to become a judge which of course is a very well-paid job for by the standards of 99 percent of people nonetheless mm. does represent quite a change of financial lifestyle and mm. at times i regretted that and then there is a certain loss of freedom that you suffer from being a judge there are things that you know if you did and got caught you'd lose your job they weren't things i wanted to do but nonetheless, mm. psychologically, that's a bit constraining. Mm. Um, and you're bound by term times and sitting times in a way that barristers are less bound by.
0: And did you have a, because I suspect being a judge as well, is also quite a lonely job. You move from chambers where there's, I, I guess, some sort of at least family or college feel through to uh, possibly one of sort of remoteness. And again, we're back to the word of isolation, but um, is there any support network? Was there a support network for you at the time? It's a
1: very good point. If you're a hardworking barrister, um, you you are quite lonely in a way. I mean, you've got chambers, you've got solicitors you work with, you've got other barristers you work with as juniors or leaders, you've got interaction with the judge in court. But it is is—it is quite a lonely job. Being a judge, you're right, can be more lonely. My first year as a judge was quite isolating. I was in a a building called the Thomas More Building in the Royal Courts of Justice. Now it's where the Central London County Court is based. Mm. Uh, With the formation of the Rolls Building, the Chancery judges were moved out of the the, um, the, um, um, Thomas More Building. Uh, and that had all the disadvantages of a high rise in the sense that there was one court per floor and you had your own little with your clerk and retiring room and court. But it was quite lonely because there was no other judge on your floor. And I think my sanity was saved by the appointment a year after me of a man called Nicholas Pumphrey to be a high court judge. I hadn't really met him before. He had the room above mine. and We became very close friends. Mm. And... Um, um we used to go in and out of each other's rooms discussing our cases discussing life and that sort of thing unfortunately he he, he died young but as a uh, during my period as a high court judge he really saved me from being too lonely mm. otherwise you're absolutely right it would have been a, a rather lonely job
0: and did you ever consider um moving back into chambers Um, at that stage, or even uh, throughout the the rest of your judicial career?
1: No, I didn't. I think for two reasons. One was, the idea of retiring early was frowned on. Mm. And it was well established as a matter of convention, that you couldn't go back to being a barrister. And the sort of work which I'm lucky enough to be doing now would have been quite difficult for a chancery judge or court of appeal judge with my sort of background. As I mm. went on through the system, I did more commercial work, and that helped me in my post-judicial career. But secondly, I, I even apart from that, I never had the inclination. Sounds rather arrogant, but I think if I'd stuck at being a high court judge for 10 years or more, I might have got a bit bored or oppressed, but I was lucky enough to have a career where I moved up or around the system quite frequently. And the change of job that I was lucky enough to have from time to time meant that I never really had time even to consider whether I was bored or not, let alone to get bored. Mm. I think one of the things that makes me confident that I don't regret having become a judge is that it worked for me i didn't stick at the high court i i moved up the system it's ironic because in a way being a high court judge despite the loneliness is almost the best job in the system
0: yeah well you you, you mentioned moving up you went on to the uh, uh, court of appeal yes. well, Justice of appeal in 2004 now interestingly i think you're in charge uh, whether through choice or again through uh, obligation in charge of it and modernization now <laughs> This, this is currently quite an interesting topic.
1: Whenever anyone mentions that, I can't help smiling.
0: <laughs> and if my children were
1: listening, they'd be laughing. <laughs> Although scientists, I was um, not very good at IT at all. My wife had a computer and was already emailing and everything in the early 90s. Um, I was happily using my dictating machine. When I became a judge, I was, you had to have a laptop and you were trained to use it. And in 97, I was trained and I remember now I typed out a judgment and printed it out, emailed it to my family to show I could use my computer and email. And then I put the computer back in its box and didn't use it. (laughs) And in 2004, I was in the Court of Appeal, one of the few members who didn't use any IT.
0: Mm.
1: And I got a call from the Lord Chief Justice, Lord Wolfe, and it went something like this um Henry Brooks retiring from being judge in charge of IT and I thought you would be the ideal person to do it and there was a long pause I remember while uncharacteristically I was rendered speechless and I I remember saying in a slightly strangled voice are you sure you've dialed the right number (laughs) um and it turned out that you know I was the youngest member of the Court of Appeal I had a science degree so not unreasonably, mm. Harry Wolfe thought I was IT literate. Um, as a result of that, I um, had a crash course in IT and was in charge of IT for two years till I went to the uh, Supreme Court. It, mm. was, um, it was a frustrating job because the ministry, it was, it was a, in a sense a very powerless job because you didn't have control of any budgets. And the person who this organization that decided on all the money was um, the Ministry of Justice or the Department of Constitutional Affairs, as it was. And mm. they had their own IT unit, which was, I'm afraid, awful. And uh, I, the people who were really good about IT were a few district judges and circuit judges, three or four, who really knew their stuff and had very sensible ideas were consistently rebuffed by the ministry in favor of much more grandiose schemes that almost always fell on their face at enormous expense
0: mm. well I'm, I'm sure a few listeners will have their own comments on uh, on where we are today and um, so I'll, I'll leave that on there and we'll perhaps come back to it at another time
1: let me in fairness
0: just add this things have changed
1: very much um over the uh, since then and um while we have to wait and see what the results of the present it initiatives are mm. i have to say that the, the ministry is a very different place and the approach of the um uh, court service is very different to what it was when i was in charge of it and hopefully mm. the results will be much better
0: yeah and um, you've already mentioned uh, obviously the supreme court um and and taking up first of all uh, I think the position of uh, Master of the Rolls, yeah. um, whilst in the House of Lords, and then ultimately the Supreme Court from 2012. Oh, sorry, no, from uh, no, 2012. You're right. And uh, you you went in um, as president. Yeah. Um, how how did that sit? Was this one of those other sort of ad hoc career steps?
1: Well, uh, until I became Master of the Roles, my Career moves from the Court of Appeal to the House of Lords were simply being told that that was happening.
0: Mm.
1: By the time the master, by the time I was in the House of Lords, and the Master of the Rolls job came up, things were starting to become more modernised or regularised, or however one wants to put it. And I had to apply to be Master of the Rolls. Um, things were not um, formalised by that time. But there was a a panel that interviewed me and one or two other people who applied. And I got the job, which one of my colleagues in the Court of Appeal imaginatively described as an elective demotion, (laughs) because I moved down from the House of Lords as a law lord to the Court of Appeal. Mm. But the difference was that I was a fairly junior law lord. can't remember where I was, number nine or ten out of twelve. And I'd become... The senior member of the Court of Appeal, and it was my first job, apart from being charge of IT, that had any sort of administrative responsibilities.
0: Mm. And and uh, did you did you sort of take on a, a willingly those administrative roles, or did you miss uh, some sort of the more cut and thrust of being a um, maybe a, say I say lesser well known judge? But but um, that's obviously within the, within the grand scheme of things.
1: No, no, it's less well-known. You're right. Yes, I mean, fortunately in this country, generally, judges, even the most senior judges, are not well-known, not public figures of great notoriety or fame, and that's a very good thing. But you're right, the master of the Rolls is mildly more well-known than than most other judges. Um, And um, I, I think, I suppose, looking at my career, I quite like a challenge. And I... Didn't think that I would be particularly good at administration or committees, but I thought, nonetheless, that um, I, I would be uh, interested in and
0: <coughs> probably make a
1: decent fist of being a um, being a being master of the Royals. Mm. And I know you've only got one life. Mm. Oh, I assume you've only got one life, and um, <laughs> it, it seemed worth trying to get as much variety as one could.
0: Yeah. Oh, and, and similarly, you, um, I, I believe, applied for the role as president of the Supreme Court. I did. Um, and uh, I, I think we're up against, at the time, uh, Lady Hale and uh, Lord uh, Mance. Um, how, did you did you know that you were each uh, applying at the time for that position, or, or was it a surprise to you afterwards, or uh, did you speak about it? Um, how, how does that happen? Um, it's something that not many of us can <laughs> recognise.
1: I feel very embarrassed about this because the question of who applied (coughs) is um, to my mind something that I've always regarded as confidential. Mm. Everybody knows about this because Lord Hope, for some extraordinary reason, has seen fit to publish a diary which reveals all this. Mm. Um, So it's no good pretending it's not true because it is. Brenda and Jonathan, both uh, Brenda Hale and Jonathan Manth, both Mm. of whom I am very fond of and have great respect for, um, did both apply. I wasn't absolutely sure at the time that they'd applied. Uh, When I saw them, we didn't discuss it. It was all very English. And when I got the job, they were both very nice about it. Um, And we've never really discussed it in a typically English way. I don't believe either of them resented it. And I think the reason I got the job rather than them is because I'd had the leadership experience of having been Master of the Roles for three years, whereas they hadn't had any equivalent experience. Mm. Um, I think some people think it was all a part of a cunning and subtle plan as baldrick would put it on my part to become master of the roles with a view to becoming president of the supreme court but i'm afraid uh, that's too complimentary to me i (laughs) had no such long-term plans as i say but it is how it turned out
0: and how how does that process actually work because it's very different obviously to being tapped on the shoulder by the uh, lord chancellor um uh, at the time, or, or the Lord Chief Justice, um, this is a this is a very different position. You you're putting yourself forward and presuming that there's some sort of um, relatively formal process around it. Um, is that the right thing to do? Um, is that is that a step in the right direction?
1: It's a very interesting question. I think the judiciary and the Che and the Bar found the change from the tap on the shoulder system whereby the Lord Chancellor asked you to become a judge or a member of the Court of Appeal or whatever the change from the tap on the shoulder system to the more modern formal application system very difficult I think if you were asked if you were summoned to see the Lord Chancellor as a barrister and asked Mm. to become a High Court judge um it was quite difficult to say no as I discovered on the first application i find mm. it very difficult to say no i think it's much easier to say to yourself well i'm damned if i'm going to apply and suffer the humiliation of people knowing i've applied because of course the bars are very gossipy place so it's the bench everyone knows what's going on if i get rejected it'll be altogether embarrassing and shaming and also it'll get out mm. that i'm applying to be a judge and solicitors will stop sending me work mm. so uh, there was a great resistance um to the system. And I think there was a period when a lot of good people didn't apply to become High Court judges. Uh, A lot of people were very unhappy as High Court judges to have to be applying for the Court of Appeal. Um, And I think that was mostly that has gone away. Um, I think things have settled down a bit and people realise that it's not as bad as as it seemed when the change occurred. Mm. But there is a psychological disadvantage in it. And the other disadvantage is that the system whereby the Lord Chancellor would sort of talk to the Lord Chief Justice and the President of the Supreme Court and always equivalent, and one or two other people, and then make decisions about who was going to go where Mm. was a much more efficient and speedy and less costly system than the present system, which is very clunky. I mean, if you've got a new President of the Supreme Court to appoint, you've probably got a series of six different interviews to, uh, as a result, each of which has to be sequential because until you know the president is, you don't know who you're replacing in Mm. the job of the new president and so on down the system. So the present system undoubtedly has disadvantages, but I think rather like getting rid of the Lord Chancellor uh, in all but name, uh, the old job of Lord Chancellor, Mm. whether you think it's a change for the better or for the worse, it's a change which modern standards modern morals modern social requirements really meant was inevitable mm. and i think one just has to grip one's teeth and get on with it and even if one doesn't agree it's inevitable the idea of the system going back to the old system seems to me to be fanciful mm. so i think we have just got to make the best of it and it has got advantages uh, it is more transparent um, it is more considered um, and i certainly don't think it produces worse results than the previous system apart from the fact that it may put off some people who otherwise would have accepted the job
0: mm. and and obviously in your role uh, in the supreme court um 2012 to 2017 you had some um challenging uh cases and matters to deal with um probably it's impossible to to talk about that time without talking about uh, Brexit, which seems already such a <laughs> lifetime ago. It'll come back, you wait, it'll come back. Uh, I've got no doubt. But but how how is that experience for you? Because we were talking about really the huge criticism um, against the court system, against the judiciary, um against these people meddling, um, uh, Gina Miller obviously uh, being sort of the figurehead for that. Um, but being sort of in the center of, in the eye of the storm, uh, what was that experience like for you? And was it like anything you could have even anticipated uh, before time?
1: It brought home to me something that I had said more than once. I must admit, which is that, in one sense, compared with say a politician's job, a judge's job is terribly easy. Obviously, it isn't easy in the sense that most of the cases you have, particularly as you go out the system, are extremely difficult and demanding intellectually and often very hard to resolve. But it's easy in the sense that you have one very simple role, which is to uphold and apply the rule of law in whatever you do. And in that sense, the Miller case, the first Brexit case, was quite simple in the sense that the various problems that arose were um, answered by saying, what is required of me to support and uphold the rule of law and follow the rule of law? Mm. And if you ask yourself that question and keep it in the forefront of your mind, then your course of action is normally pretty clear. How you do it, the words you use, who you speak to, how you communicate it—that requires more careful judgment. But I, I regarded the whole thing really as as a challenge, um, which I was going to do my best to meet. And while it did lead to some sleepless nights or moments of, and moments of worry and concern, whether I'd done the right thing or what on earth do I do now—it um, was really keeping him on my mettle. I regarded the whole thing from beginning to end as a challenge. Mm. Um, And the other thing it brought home to me rather strangely, which is what I tried to tell all my colleagues, was while everyone was having attacks of the vapors over the undoubtedly completely disgraceful Daily Mail article, the not dissimilar article, in the Daily Telegraph, it brought home to me a point again that I'd been making, which is actually whatever you say about the press and the media uh, very much uh, the, the truth is that they very much do not attack or gun for the judges there are occasional cases occasional moments where they unfairly occasionally I have to say fairly attack a judge or group of judges mm. but the remarkable thing about the enemies of the people I think is that it was such a r- rare indeed virtually unique occurrence. Mm. And while it was quite wrong, and the government mishandled it badly, I have to say that actually it highlights the fact that the judiciary are treated with respect generally. Um, and I, I think that's important. And one of the reasons that it's desirable and, and made possible is because judges don't become great public figures like they tend to in the supreme court of the united states and i think that's a good thing
0: yeah well that politicization of the judiciary is certainly something which is uh, i don't think there's necessarily gone away yet um is it something that you're still worried about it's a bit trite
1: but there's the great statement the price of liberty is eternal vigilance and the truth is you should always be worrying about things like that um you don't want to make too much of a noise about them. I think if judges go marching up and down and others go marching up and down saying how disgraceful it is if the government's going to interfere with the judges, that's a bit of a red rag to the to the government. But I think, nonetheless, one has to be very careful and make sure that in appropriate cases and occasions one stands up for not politicising the judiciary. Mm. I think every, everyone really agrees that the judiciary shouldn't be politicized. The trouble is that when the judges are, as sometimes happens, called upon to decide a case with political implications, those who don't like the decision the judges have reached tend to accuse the judges of being politically biased. Mm. They then come up with solutions which are almost laughable, such as the idea that you should involve politicians in the appointment of judges. Anything more likely to make judges politically slanted than knowing they have to suck up to politicians to get appointed mm. seems to me to be hard to imagine.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And one has to be careful of saying keep things as they are because everybody and judges are no exception. Nobody likes change in their own area. Mm. But I do think that we've had a change in the appointment of the judges. The changes work fairly well. We've kept politicians out of it. Politicians have had, in my view, the good sense to be kept, to keep themselves out of it. And that should continue.
0: Mm. And and d- during that time, uh, obviously there's so much media interest, uh, d- but also public interest. And did you ever feel uh, that your security was being jeopardized or even that of your family? Um, because I think you're, uh, your wife um, was uh, tweeting about uh, the referendum. I think uh, your your sister was speaking out on on political issues around it sister, at the time Sister as well. in law, the, sister, sister say, in law, sorry, who I believe sister, is a rabbi and, and that's yeah. Right. And um uh, it, it, were, were, were there any challenges, uh, or did you feel that your your own integrity or, or security was being compromised?
1: The any the only time I felt personally upset was over my wife. Yeah, um, I felt that. She had been dragged into something totally unfairly. Um, And it was a wonderfully old fashioned view that because she had a certain view, uh, I must have it. Whether it was insulting her that she was incapable of having her own view, Mm. or insulting me that I was incapable of having my own view, I don't know. But that was the first problem. The second problem was the almost insulting nature of the belief that my view on Um, Brexit, if they were right about it, which I have to say they were, um, would influence the decision I made in the first Miller Mm. case. The third thing I have to say, which always struck me as ironic, was although it was totally counter to what everyone else seemed to have thought, I thought actually the decision we made that the Article 50 notice had to be formally approved by Parliament Mm. was actually helpful to Brexit, not the other way because it meant that Parliament couldn't subsequently say that was nothing to do with us. Mm. They got Parliament in on the Act, which made it more difficult to undo. That's what I thought at the time. But the whole thing was not the media or the British public at their best, but um, it was one of those things that happens, and provided you don't overreact and do something damaging for the long term it's all part of the warp and weft of life
0: mm. uh, and, and you you talked about the relative anonymity of judges um has that been your experience subsequently as well are you are you easily going under the radar or do you, you manage to go out to the restaurant or to a pub obviously not during lockdown um <laughs> but otherwise um is that something you're able to enjoy
1: let me answer that question slightly elliptically um when i was doing the 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 miller case the the first of the um the first brexit case um it was broadcast and a lot of people watched it and my communication security people said i should stop coming to work and going home by underground because too many people would recognize me and it would be embarrassing and so on and i said i would carry on going traveling by underground but if i did find I was being noticed and people coming up to me or being rude to me or polite to me or whatever, I, I, I'd take a car instead. Mm. Throughout the whole hearing, not a single person seemed to notice me on the underground. <laughs> um, the, the only time I got aware of being noticed was when I was being driven home with my wife and a, a couple of friends in a, in a cab about four weeks after the Brexit case. And suddenly this cabbie looked in the mirror and said to me, are you that Lord <laughs> Um And I said, gosh, yes, I am. And he, he'd watched it. It turned out that he was a refugee from the Congo where his father had been Chief Justice. Oh, wow. Uh, that was the only time anyone, obviously <laughs> members of the bar who I knew or yeah. had been in front of yeah. me would recognise me, but it's the only time I was approached by anybody that I can remember while I was um, in the Supreme Court and that's how it should be one shouldn't be a, a public figure recognized by 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 people one should be doing one's job
0: so you don't think we should be going back to wigs in the Supreme Court anytime soon
1: it's not a subject I have remotely <laughs> strong feelings about um, I, I I think I've the only strong feeling I have is that it's such an unimportant issue and seems to create such excitement the one thing one doesn't do is to try and change whatever the status quo is so yes i would leave things as they are
0: good good um i'm sure most people will agree with you um so uh, looking at, at life now um you've 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 really been forced out of that position uh, with the compulsory retirement age. Yeah. Um, was that a matter of regret? Is that something that, again, we might see changing in the near future? Um, Would you have carried on if you could?
1: I think they should increase the retirement age to 75 for three reasons. One is that um, people are keeping healthy mentally and physically for longer than they were, and the retirement age is going up. And the judge's retirement age since 1959 has been coming down, and it's time it went up. Secondly, because the gap between earnings of a successful barrister and a judge are increasing, people are becoming judges rather older than used to be the case. Mm. And I think in order to give people a decent time as a judge, both for the system's sake and for their sake, they should increase the retirement age. And thirdly, it, it, it appears to me that if people are taking the job later, and it's less attractive financially, Mm. there will be a shortage of judges. And indeed, there is a shortage of first class Mm. people applying to become judges. And therefore we shouldn't get rid of people who do become judges earlier than we have to. So far as my personal position is concerned, uh, yes, I did regret very much having to go at 70. I would have done a bit more if I could have done. Mm. Um, But as things have turned out, i am not at all unhappy that i had to go at 70. Mm. Uh, i've embarked on a fresh career uh, as an arbitrator and legal expert and doing some charity work and other things and while i could have done that at 75 uh, i think starting it at 70 means that i have longer to do it and will get more work uh, to do as a result and uh, i'm enjoying myself very much i do occasionally look at cases that the Supreme Court has got in front of it, or that it's decided, and feel sorry that I wasn't involved in the case because mm. I would have been interested, but that's as bad as it gets.
0: And, and do you have a, um, a, a, a Supreme Court justices uh, WhatsApp group? Are you still in contact with people? Do you, do you get to meet up <laughs> at, uh, at all?
1: I'm afraid we're sufficiently old fashioned um, <laughs> that I, I see a number of my colleagues still for lunch or for dinner, um and i'm in email contact with them but mm. um there isn't a supreme court judge's helpline or, or, <laughs> or, or whatsapp group not yet anyway I so that's a the,
0: that's, time. Not, that's not the charity you're, you're involved in then uh, to be set up not um, yet
1: perhaps it, perhaps i should yes a sort of and, and, samaritans group for supreme court justices <laughs> retired and present
0: uh look, looking ahead it is something it might well become uh, increasingly necessary um with, with the legislation that's probably going to be coming out of uh, the, the current uh, chaos um but but you you mentioned uh, a while ago lord hope and his diaries but have you had the have you been approached have you have you thought about sort of your own memoir or have you have you taken time to look back on your career and and sort of the obviously, over and above our conversation today. Um, but to think about some of the great achievements that you've had or, or even the things that maybe you, you regret or that, that still maybe keep you awake at night. Um, is that something we can look forward to?
1: Undoubtedly, as a judge, there are decisions which keep you awake at night, sometimes because you're wrestling with getting the right answer, and mm. sometimes rather pointlessly because you're regretting a decision you've given. Um, those regrets like most regrets tend to dissipate with time Um, as for writing about my career I don't think it's nearly interesting enough uh, to write a book about Um, and reading retired judges books about their life and times which come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes I can't say any of them make me want to reconsider my
0: decision Mm. I don't think I'm I'm
1: interesting enough and my life has been interesting enough and those things that are interesting if they are or important if they are are there for the public to see I've given speeches more significantly I've given judgments they're out Mm. there Mm. Um, as for my life it's been so far I've been lucky and happy but nothing particularly interesting or original for anyone to read about And I'm not a particularly particularly talented writer. Some people can write brilliantly about things of no great interest. Um, But I can't claim to have that ability.
0: Well, I'm sure our listeners will disagree with some of the comments you've just made. But uh, also, um, Will, the the vast number of students that are coming through the University of Law, of which you are now Chancellor. Yes. um, how, how, how did that come about and, and are you relishing that role and, and, and what do you think is the role of law schools in, um, sort of in promoting the profession, firstly, uh, your own role within that, um, and what change can you foresee?
1: Well, I suppose the role of law schools is twofold. One is to promote the rule of law generally by educating people about law and producing lawyers. A number of people will go through law schools and understand about the rule of law and understand the law, but go on to other careers. Um, But, uh, of course, most many of them and probably most of them will end up as lawyers somewhere, uh, which is a very important um, task in terms of the interest of the country as a whole, because the rule of law is as fundamental, some might say more fundamental than democracy um, to any civilized system. and producing lawyers also is obviously extremely important because there's no point having the rule of law. Indeed, you can't have the rule of law without lawyers and judges to give effect to the law, to make people understand the law, to represent them and to carry out the law. And I think therefore law schools have a very, very important function. As for my own role, I'm afraid rather characteristic of my approach to life, To life, I, I, I do what I'm asked. Um, I try and attend as many award ceremonies as I can, uh, which are um important in terms of sending a message to law graduates and their families going out in the world mm. and While shaking hands and giving scrolls to a hundred or two hundred people or even three hundred people on the trot uh, can be a bit wearing, it's very <laughs> important for them
0: mm.
1: uh, and then also taking part in functions and if I'm asked giving lectures or talks or whatever it's all part of part of the job again and, and my attitude is a bit ad hoc a bit like being a judge i suppose
0: yeah.
1: I, I do what i'm asked to do when i've got a case to do or a talk to give i'll do it
0: mm. well uh, i am going to draw things to close good thank you so much for your time and i'm conscious that uh, whilst many people are now working from home um sisters barristers and and, and obviously uh, students themselves um, uh, may well be not move, dressing moving out of their dressing gowns uh, during the course of the day. Do you have your old robes hanging in a wardrobe somewhere that you occasionally throw on just to uh, just to do the housework <laughs> in? The uh,
1: robes I had as a high court judge were I did buy, but you get a grant for them, and I sold them on uh, when I went to the Court of appeal. The robes you get in the Court of appeal, and uh supreme court are lent to you and you hand them back when you um stand down so i haven't got any robes but i'm nonetheless and i wasn't completely sure whether this was purely oral or whether it was going to be videoed as well i am dressed you'll be glad to hear
0: (laughs) well we'll we'll not get to enjoy that i'm afraid um but we'll, we'll maybe maybe another time um Uh, uh, Lord Newberger, David, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, I say, stay isolated, stay safe, (laughs) and we uh, will hopefully catch up again soon. Thank you very much indeed. As ever, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again and why not give us a rating or subscribe, that way you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.